Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! the consequence, good or bad, of every single choice that you would make? What if he gave you that kind of superpower? How much different would your life look now? How much different would it look in the future if God just said, look, I'm going to let you know how this is going to work out before every time you made a choice? That might get kind of frustrating after a while, to be honest. I'm like, just let me screw up, Lord. I, I can't handle all this, right? But he, and he does. That's the thing. He does. And so in this second part of Genesis, uh, you know, we're back into this book, and the people that we're going to meet in this series absolutely could have used that superpower, some of them, to be able to see into the future of what their consequences would be for the sins, especially, that they were committing. Uh, we're going to be in this series. I'm really pumped about this summer because we get to have a bunch of different people uh, bring the word on different things. So next Sunday, Dean's going to be here, and he's going to be uh, looking at Cain and Abel, right, that story. And then the weekend after that, my friend Darren will be here, and he's going to be talking kind of just the generational consequences of the choices that we make. And then Tim is going to take a total break from all that, and he's going to talk about the Nephilim. So he's going to crush it, baby. I cannot wait what he's going to bring. And then uh, the week after that, uh, my man Joey back there, he's going to be bringing the word. So I'm really excited about that as well. And he'll be talking about Noah's flood. Um, and that's, that's awkward, right? Uh, Noah's flood is not an easy story. It's like, hey, let's put it in our kids' rooms. Or we shouldn't because it's a weird story to do that with, right? But uh, in all of these stories and all of these people, we're going to be seeing the fallout, the consequences of sin and stuff like that. So we're back in Genesis. Uh, we're going to be picking up today with the second half of their story, of Adam and Eve's story, rather, just to understand the fallout of their choices, but also the, like, the impact that they have on not only them, but the people around them, because that's how we should be thinking. The impact of our choices on other people. It's not just about us, because I think intrinsic in our faith is this idea that we're going to focus on other people. Right? I mean, that's what Christ said we should be doing. And so in this book of Genesis, we're going to see so many themes the whole time we're in it that echo into your life and that especially echo into the rest of the Bible. Right? So that's what I want to be able to see in this. In part two, I've, I've kind of road to redemption because what I think is cool about this part in particular is we see some serious consequences of sin, but we also see God right in the messy middle. And I thank God so much that he meets me in the messy middle of my life. That even in my rejection of him and the way that I live sometimes and the way that I think and all that kind of stuff, God meets me right there. And that's what we see. Because God's going to give us amazing promise right here in the middle of it. And if you understand this idea, if you understand really Genesis as a whole, you're really going to appreciate the rest of the Bible much, much better. Like, really. Because this, what we're going to see, sin, consequence, God meeting right there in the middle, that is the grand narrative of the entire Bible. Sin, consequence, God meeting us right there in the middle of it all and being good to us even when we don't deserve it, right? That is the grand narrative of the Bible, but it's one that also gets looked over. So my question to consider for today for you is this. How can thinking about the consequences of your sins impact your day-to-day choices? This is really important to consider because it's day-to-day choices, little things that are going to echo into the rest of your life. So think about your job. 
Think about how you are at your job. Think about the, th- the things that you say to coworkers and to your boss. I know people and have had conversations with people that don't know why they can't keep a job. And all they do is complain about that job while they're at that job. Right? They run their mouth uh, about their boss and then to their coworkers, and then they wonder why they can't get references for the next job. It's like, I just burned that bridge. Why can't I use that anymore? Right? The things that we say, the things that come out of our mouth have an impact. Or think about your relationships. How do you talk about people in your life? How do you talk to people in your life? Do you wonder why your relationships are a mess? Maybe it's because you're a jerk. Right? Like, we don't usually say, I talk to people again, like, everybody in my life is against me. And I'm like, well, maybe it's something that you're doing. Right? And we don't see that because we don't want to own that. Right? I don't understand why my wife doesn't want to be intimate. Maybe it's because you're watching porn and she caught you. Maybe it's because you're having an affair. Maybe it's because you treat her like garbage. Right? These kinds of things are consequences of the choices that we make. Why can't I afford to go out to eat? Because you're blowing all your money. That's why we did Financial Peace University, right? To be able to better understand our finances, because we're not good with money in America. And even though we've got tons of it, right? We can't seem to find enough of it. And so these are really, really like core areas of our life. But you think about how you reflect Jesus. You think how you reflect our church and this community. You think about addiction. You think about anything. It's all these little things. And here's the truth from this question right here I want you to notice. Your life is the sum of the little choices you make every single day. And there are far too many people that don't understand that principle right there. They don't see the connection between all the little things that they're doing every day and how their future is turning out. I see this even in people like how they, they feel about themselves. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. But I know a lot of Christians included that hate themselves. They hate their body. They hate how they're not smart enough, tall enough, whatever. They're not enough something, right? And so they don't understand that the way they think about themselves, little by little by little by little, all of a sudden, five years into that, now you got real problems. There's a lot of people that make the disconnect between what we do every single day and the consequences in our life. So that's kind of the idea that we're starting with. But for today, our sermon, fallout. Our sin has consequences. This basically is what we see in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. We see Adam and Eve uh, in this section really feeling the weight of the choice that they made. And it seems like such a small choice, not the funny thing about sin. It seems like a, a small thing at the time sometimes. Right? Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to notice whatever the thing might be. And then all of a sudden you have this. So we're going to see that, yes, our sin has consequences, but we're going to see God meeting them there in the middle of that. We're also going to see how deceptive lie, uh, deceptive a lie sin is, because I think in this passage particularly, they go from like, okay, we had life, now we have death. We had plenty, but now we're going to have to scratch out an existence by the sweat of our brow. I had perfect relational unity with my spouse and with God, and now all I have is permanent separation. We had perfect pleasure, now we've got pain. So, sin is funny that way. It's a very deceitful liar, and it never, never comes through on what we want or what we think we're going to get. But in the midst of all this is also a foreshadowing of the hope that would come in Jesus. And I love this passage because of the power of that. But the bottom line to this morning, I'll give it to you right up front, because I want you to be able to hear it clearly this morning, is if you buy the lie now, you are going to pay the price later. This is still a very, very popular marketing scheme today. Buy now and let tomorrow you worry about paying for it, right? 
that's, that's tomorrow you problem, not today you. Today you, you're going to have some fun. Today you're going to get that thing that you want. Tomorrow you, I don't know. We'll see. Right? And so this is the culture we live in. And to tie this, tie this principle into something that's happening right now and how we're having fallout. So um, the Supreme Court just recently decided that the government's not going to get anybody any money for college debt, right? So you're going to have to pay those debts. They're coming due again in September. Uh, and that's going to change a lot of things for a lot of people. The problem I see with what we have in America and our college system is that it's totally broken. And it is a total scam. I don't know how in the world we allow 17-year-olds to take on enough debt to ruin the next several decades of their lives. I don't understand how we allow that to happen and why there's not better education. But again, why do we do Financial Peace University? Because of this kind of stuff right here. Because of this mentality that we get roped into thinking, I have to have this education that's going to cost me maybe $50,000 a year so that when I graduate, all I basically have is a mortgage and no house. Right? And it's like my generation and the next generation is being crushed by this. But why is that? Well, again, it's the mentality that we have as a nation. So I talked recently to uh, somebody who was, goes, uh, their parents go to our church, and he used to run the fire lab at WPI. And I got into this conversation with him, and I said, so tell me, I said, you're, you're hiring some pretty high-level people to do what you do over there at WPI, because if you don't know, there's pretty smart people that work over there, right? And I said, so do you care where their first two years of college were? And he said, absolutely not. I don't care where their four years of college were, to be honest. He said, the thing I want to know is I'm sitting across this person. Did they graduate? Did they have decent grades? That says something about them. He said, but I want that person to look me in the eye. And I want to know, are they capable of doing this job? Can I hire this person and potentially trust this person to do this job well? And he was like, you know, he said, some universities, you know, you're writing your own checks. If you Harvard, Yale, those kind of places, you say, yeah, that's one thing. He said, but for the most part, he said, we don't care in the professional world. He said, I've never asked anybody, well, did you, I see you graduate from here. Did you go to community college? Because if not, you know, it's like that conversation never comes up. But we don't also have that conversation with our kids. Just go to community college for a couple of years. Work through college. Don't pile up debt. Don't buy the lie now and pay the price later. So I use that as an example to show you that's something very much that we're caught up in, this mentality. And it's been like that from the very beginning of human history. And it's one we cannot seem to get away from, right, unless we're listening to the voice of God. So buy the lie now, and you're going to pay the price later. It's something we see in this book, in real life. Because Adam and Eve, as a recap, they did this, right? They knew better. They had perfection. They took the apple. Eve was deceived. She gave it to her husband who was standing there with her. They ate the, well, not the apple. They ate the fruit, and then everything falls apart. Everything falls apart. We kind of know that story, but... What I want us to take away from the first half of their story is this right here. This see, want, take. This is a perfect recipe for how to ruin your life. Right? So if you want to ruin your life, if you came in this morning and you're like, gosh, I just really would like to know how to wreck everything. See, want, take. I don't care what it is. If I see it and I want it, I'm going to take it. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. You see this pattern in so many other people in the Bible, and it always works out terribly. When it comes to simple things, I'm not talking about like you go to the store and you want a box of crackers. I'm talking like with something you know is simple and you want it anyway, so you just go ahead and take it. That's, that's what happens, and then the fallout can sometimes be tremendous. So let's jump in to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to see the second half of their story. So, then the man, Adam and his wife Eve, 
they heard the sound of the Lord God. So the Lord God is an important name for us to notice in Genesis chapter 3 because Lord God is a combination of two words in Hebrew. Yahweh Elohim. So Yahweh is the name of God. That's a very personal thing. Whereas Elohim is, that's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. That's a title. That's explaining that God is above everything. He is the Elohim of Elohim. And yet here in chapter 3, when we're about to see God meet them in their sin, all of a sudden now we get this different picture of God, that He is Elohim, He is the Almighty Creator, but He's also very personal. And so it's important that, that this is in Genesis, that Moses would write this down, that God would clearly communicate to him something about His nature. Big Creator, but also He's about to be really, really intimate. So they hear Him walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, i.e., there's closeness, there's intimacy there. In the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God. They hid from Yahweh Elohim among the trees of the garden. So this is a heartbreaking scene. But again, some of us know the story so well, we skip right through what's actually being said. Because they had perfect unity, right? And God's not literally walking through heaven, right? This is the idea of His presence being close there. And what happens, though? They thought that they were going to have all their dreams come true. They thought, ultimately, they were going to have um, perfection. They were going to have deity. Not only do they not have perfection now, but they're terrified of deity. They don't even want to be in deity's presence. And this is what sin does to us. I mean, I'm an accountability partner with a lot of different guys from literally all over the country. And when I have conversations with them about something they tripped up with or, you know, when they need to confess or something like that, and I'm going to be in that, like, that phase with them, it's always that their sin makes them run from God. They don't want to call me. They don't want to talk to me. I don't want to call other guys and talk to them about it. I don't want to go to God because I've sinned and I don't want to be in His presence. Like, this is the story of humanity. This is what we do. And so rather than running to God, we run from God. Like, that's what we see. And I see it happen in people's lives all the time. They run from God to the point where they just stop coming to church because they think, and I've had people say, in our church, like, well, people will eventually find out and then they'll just be talking about it. I'm like, man, that's a big vote of confidence for your fellow believers. But why do we believe that? Because for so long, in American Christianity, we think that we need to be perfect when we come here. So you can't come and be honest about sin if everybody's perfect. But spoiler alert, everybody's not. Everybody's a disaster in some way, right? In some form of fashion, we are a disaster, right? And so running from God is what sin does to us. Running from the community with God is what sin does to us, right? So, and then the trees of the garden, that's sad as well, because the trees used to represent life and perfect perfection and, like, provision, and now they're a place of hiding and shame, right? So the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, He calls out to the man. Now, why in the world would He call out to the man first? That seems unfair being a guy myself. Was, was Adam just closer? Did he just have better hearing? Because we know that's not true, ladies, right? Ladies have way better hearing than guys, right? You have like a, like a little kid say something four rooms down, and mom's going to hear it. Dad's going to be like, what? You have kids? Right? No, he calls out to the man because he's responsible. God's going to go and address him first, but he doesn't notice he's not doing it in a way. He's not like, ripping heaven and earth apart as he does this, he comes walking and he says to the man, where are you? 
That's an interesting question that God would do this because, again, it reveals something about the nature of God. We often have this heavy-handed view of God, and yet here in God's very first interaction with human sin and human rejection and disobedience and everything that goes with it, he simply asks the question, where are you? And it's like he doesn't know, right? It's like he doesn't know. And so I often see people asking God this question, God, where are you? And then I wonder sometimes if he isn't like, well, Kyle, where are you? What are you doing? Where have you gone? Like, why are you going down this path? Like, you just see God's tender approach to human sin in this scene. And I think it's a really thing, it's something worth considering. And then in verse 10, the conversation goes on. He says, I heard you in the garden, Adam says, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I felt ashamed. I felt exposed. I felt alienated again. I'm going to run from God. Then he asked, well, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And he's talking to him specifically. In Hebrew, this is recorded as second person singular. He's not talking to Adam and Eve. When Serpent was talking to Eve, it was in the plural. He was talking to them both. Now when God is addressing Adam, he's only addressing Adam. He's speaking to Adam about this. And he's saying, who told you you're naked? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? And this is interesting because God's like... He's interrogating him a little bit here because he's wanting Adam to be honest with him. And you know if you're a parent, you've done this with your kids, right? There's writing on the wall, and I've had lots of it in my house, even scratched into things. Hey, do you know who did that? Oh, man, that's unfortunate that that happened, Dad, but I don't know. I can't be sure who did that. And then one time, I remember when Bear was younger, it was so funny. He was like, you know, this tall. He was just a little guy. I walked in the bathroom. We've got these um, blinds, right? These, like the, like, the wide blinds in the bathroom. And right about where Bear's head level was, there was this bite mark on the blind. And it was like he was probably just staring out the window and just kind of aimlessly, mindlessly bit it down. The only problem for Bear is, one, it was at the correct height, and two, the teeth prints on the blind just happened to be missing the two front teeth that Bear just happened to be missing. So I brought Bear in. I said, hey, buddy, do you know who did this? And he looked right at me and right at that, and he was like, no. And I was like, no, you didn't do that. Because like, notice how the two front teeth there are missing. And he's like, yeah, sorry, I can't help you out, Dad. I'm like, all right, fair enough. You know, so it's not like God didn't know. It was just he's given us the opportunity. So then it continues in verse 12 here. And this is what Adam does, and this is where things really start to unravel. The man replied, the woman you gave me to be with, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it, right? So this is definitely not my fault. I don't want you to miss what's happening in this scene right here. He's like, Lord, look, I just want to be honest with you. I want to lay out, I want to remind you, Lord, what you did here to me. You gave me the woman, just to be clear, and then she gives me the fruit. So not only is it her fault, God, ultimately, yeah, if we're being honest with each other, this is your fault. Right? And so here we have the very first victim in all of human history. Right? I didn't do that. Someone else did. My friend Mark, who is up at work camp, who I'll be seeing later today, he gave me a, a little saying that I've, uh, I've always thought is funny and true, and I've passed it on to my kids. And he said, Kyle, you know what? There's two kinds of people in the world. One loses their wallet. The other says somebody stole their wallet. And I was like, I had to think about that for a second. And I was like, yeah, because it's like, oh, man, what did I do with my wallet? I must have misplaced it. Then there's the other person who's like, somebody stole it. Somebody stole my wallet. I didn't lose it. Somebody took it, right? And that's exactly what you see happening here, right? Zero responsibility. It's all blame on everybody else, including God. What I think is interesting about this is you see this come up in the book of Proverbs. So in the book of Proverbs, 19, verse 3, a person's own foolishness 
leads him astray. And yet what happens? His heart rages against the Lord. I've made all these bad decisions. I've committed all these sins. And Lord, why would you do this to me? Where are you, God? And again, I think it's like a garden experience. Where am I? Where are you? What are you doing? Of course this is the consequence that you're going to suffer. And now you're upset with me. But I've seen Christians do it. I've seen Christians very much do that. So, this, what is heartbreaking? This thing right here. The woman you gave me, she gave me some fruit. He goes from here in Genesis 1 and 2, we see this beautiful relationship between the two. So, next slide. In Genesis 1 and 2, you see him, and eventually he would say this in Genesis chapter 2. This one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, Isha, because she was taken from man, Ish. And so he's so excited. He's got this gift from God. And just moments later, she was a mistake. She's a curse. And God ultimately, you're at fault for bringing me this blasted woman who I thought was a gift. But it turns out she's not. So this is just the brokenness of that relationship. And sin, again, does not deliver what is promised. And now they're going to feel the, the weight of the consequences of the choices that they've made. And so, again, these are great principles for us to take out. So, in verse 13, So, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, again, the, the buck is just continuing to be passed here. Like, well, actually, it wasn't me. It was the, it was the serpent. And so, the serpent, remember, in Hebrew, has a very close linguistic connection to witchcraft. The idea the serpent was offering was a sidestep of God. You don't need God to get what you want out of life, right? And that man, that's the oldest lie there is. You don't need God to get what you want. There's all this other stuff. Buy now, pay later, right? You don't need God. So what we see out of this right here, he deceived me and I ate it. So again, God's not raging in this scene, simply asking. He tells him, doesn't really accept responsibility. And in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy, and also in Romans chapter 5, you see that Eve was deceived, but Adam is guilty. So Adam is guilty. And in Jewish tradition, Jewishness passes through the woman, but sin passes through the man. Traces all the way back to Adam, and it's the significance of Jesus not having an earthly father. No sin, nature, was passed to Jesus. Right? So knowing Genesis, understanding Jewish tradition, understanding this book is really going to help bring a lot of the book of the Bible itself to life for you. So now, now you're going to see the, the results. God's going to pronounce what's going down with each person. So he starts with the serpent, not asking any questions. So Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim says to the serpent, doesn't ask him anything, it's just judgment time. Because you've done this, you are cursed. You are cursed. So Adam and Eve, you're going to notice in a little bit, they are not cursed. Why do Adam and Eve not get cursed, but the serpent does? Because the imago Dei doesn't go away. Being made in the image of God and the value that goes with that doesn't change. Humans aren't cursed. You are not cursed, right? It's only the serpent. And not even the serpent. It's really him speaking through the serpent to the power that's behind it, right? That's the important thing to consider in this passage is the curse that's being laid down on the enemy, and so you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. And this is like, this is really what it boils down to. You will move on your belly and eat the dust all the days of your life. Now, this eating the dust, this is a poetic phrase because this is all very, very poetic in Genesis, in, in the Hebrew. So what is he saying that you're going to eat the dust all the days of your life? 
He's not saying he's literally going to eat dust. That's a poetic phrase that means you're going to live in humiliation for your entire existence. So to eat dust in the Old Testament world was to be humiliated. So essentially what God is saying, his curse is that he is going to live a life, live an existence of humiliation until he's eventually destroyed. Like that's what's going on here because you're going to see that in the next couple verses with when he says to, what he says to Eve. So understand that this means you will never win. You are going to try, you are going to try, you are going to try, Satan, and you are always going to fail. You're never going to have ultimate victory. You're just not. Your existence is going to be one of humiliation. So that's important, again, knowing, knowing the biblical story. So then he says this interesting thing. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So the hostility that's mentioned here in this, that Hebrew word means a life and death struggle between two enemy combatants in war. Somebody's going to live, somebody's going to die. This is not like real, wives of how, real housewives of some suburbia, like drama show. Like this is not like you and your siblings. This is like real deal. One of us is going to die at the end of this. And so that's the kind of hostility, the tension that's going to be between these two offspring. And so who's the offspring then? Well, you got your offspring, that's demons and the like. But in the New Testament, Jesus also says to the religious leaders, John 8, 44, you're just like your father, Satan, who's been a liar since the beginning. So Jesus refers to this. So even those that are like following after Satan and living his lies and stealing his lies, it's like that's what he's talking about. And then generally speaking, who are her offspring? Well, it's people. It's humanity. You're never going to win against humanity, but you're always going to be in this life and death struggle against humanity. And then verse 16. He says this. He, he's just gears, not just generally speaking. Now he's just gears. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Generally speaking, there's going to be a battle between humans and Satan, but ultimately, the one that's going to win is he. It's going to be Jesus. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelium. The Greek phrase that means the first gospel. It's the very first time that Jesus is ever introduced into the story, and it's because of sin. So right away, you see the tenderness of God. You see the plan of God to say, man, you're going to mess this all up. The enemy is going to cause harm. People are going to willingly invite the enemy into their lives to do harm. And yet, and yet, he will not win. I have a plan for human sin. Right here in the very beginning. It's an amazing thing if you really consider what's happening in that scene. So then he says that. He pronounces that all to the, to the enemy. And then in the New Testament, again, I just want to keep tying the the, the pieces together here. Paul closing up one of his most famous letters to the book of Roman or to the people in Rome in our book of Romans closes up last chapter. He says, "The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, and the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you." Revelation, you see this happen, right? So here is this like just this thread that never goes away that the Satan that Satan's always going to be there. And in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it is always the Satan, right? It's always the Satan. And so he's going to be a force to be reckoned with in this world, certainly. But ultimately, the Lord is going to crush Satan under your feet, right? Because he, there he is, nipping, biting at your heels. And yet, because of what Jesus does, he's going to be crushed. So this, again, understanding Genesis, so important. So then he shifts gears and he looks at the woman. And he says, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. So, what was once just a pure blessing is now going to be also a reminder of your sin, a painful reminder. And anybody that's had a child in here 
knows it's not quite as bad as stepping on Legos with your bare feet, but it's pretty bad, right? So women don't normally, everybody's like, wait, what did you say? Women don't normally be like, man, I just want to embrace all the pain of childbirth. Cannot wait for that, right? Uh, most women I know don't say that kind of thing. And so even though it's a blessing, even though Adam has condemned the world to death, notice this, life is still going to come through. Hope is still going to come through Eve. So Adam, man, it's pretty heavy. Like, God's pretty heavy-handed with, with Adam. And yet he says, but Eve, the hope is actually going to come through you. Because that's what your name means. Life. Right? So he says, your desire, and this is the confusing part here, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Now, I've looked at this over the years, and I looked at this, obviously, this past week and over the last couple months. Your desire will be for your husband. What is going on with that little phrase there? There's a lot of thought. There's a lot of speculation. Is it relational tension? Is it sexual tension? Is it, like, I want to be in charge tension? Like, there's all kinds of different views on what the first part of that means and the exact nature of the desire. Because there are people who think, well, maybe it's sexual desire because they just got talking, done talking about kids. And, like, is there, like, what's going on? And, and really there's no consensus on what that means. Where you see the thrust of the passage is the yet he will rule over you part. What God is essentially saying to her is that your relationship is now going to be broken because of sin. You guys are going to be fighting for control forever and ever and ever. Because you were supposed to be, how my intention was, is that you would rule equally. You would rule this world together as co-equal leaders, and now it's going to be broken. And so now, Adam, you're going to have to lead. I'm going to force you to lead. But women are not always going to want that. Women are going to chafe against that. They're not going to like that. This does not mean guys get to be in charge. This is not like not every, like, oh, I'm king of my throne now. That, that's not what this is talking about. He's saying, Adam, you dropped the ball, and now I'm going to force you to do it forever and ever and ever. All your male descendants. I'm going to force you to do it. That's why you see in the Bible, it's always guys that are being forced into leadership. When they had to go to the temple in the Old Testament, who had to go before God on behalf of his family? It's not because he was better. You're going to be accountable, and you're going to stand before me and represent your family. You are going to be accountable for the spiritual condition of your family, men. And so that's the heaviness of this verse. It's not so much against Eve, but it's still basically against Adam. And so in Ephesians 5, verse 21, we see this repeated, and he says, look, the picture is that you should submit to one another out of Christian love. Like, that's the picture of male-female relationships, that you submit to one another. But then the very next verses, he goes on to talk about, but men, you are going to be forced to lead, and you're going to lead like Jesus. That's why it's so important as a woman to find somebody that loves Jesus, because if you love a woman like Jesus, that means you're going to be sacrificial. It means you're going to put her first, right? It means you're going, to be, you're going to be a protector. You're going to seek to provide. You're going to do the things, the very things that Jesus did for his church. But there's going to be forever attention in your relationships are going to be broken. And that's easy. You look all over our culture and you can just see the, just the nature of we're not, we're not always on the same wavelength any longer. Right? There's always going to be tension. So that's what we get, get out of that one. Then he turns to the man. And again, he's got the most to say for the man, even more than he did for the serpent. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree about which I command you, do not eat from it. The ground, or in Hebrew, the adama, the connection between Adam and the ground. The ground is cursed because of you. So now the serpent's cursed, the ground's cursed, the people still are not cursed. You will eat from it by means of painful labor. Again, what was a blessing is now going to be a painful reminder of your sin. You're going to eat by means of painful labor all the days of your life. In verse 18, he will produce, or it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. If you go back to Genesis 1, if you're able to make a note somehow in your Bible, 
in Genesis 1, it says, I think day 3, um, before there was a plant in the field. And that's a really weird phrase. Like, why would he say that? Well, because he's talking about this right here. What's happening in Genesis 1 is before the fall. There's not this cursed plant. There's not this cursed ground yet that exists. It's the same exact phrase. So he said, you will eat the bread, eat bread by the sweat of your brow, until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to just, to the dust. So this, again, connection to the New Testament, Romans 8. The creation itself groans because this curse was laid upon the earth. Unwillingly, this happened to the earth, and creation groans for recreation. So if you really understand Genesis, if you really understand the Bible, you're going to see the very physical nature of eternity. Creation itself is going to be recreated, Paul says in Romans 8. And then in Revelation 21, you see that happening. You understand, if you are a student of the Bible and you're paying attention to some of the details, heaven is not some weird, lame existence in the clouds. It's going to be a physical reality, right? That you're going to have a physical body, the resurrection talk, and then the Revelation 21 talk. What you see happen at the very end of the Bible is God restores Eden. That's heaven. It's what our souls yearn for. We want to get back to a place where we're not always struggling, we're not always hurting, we're not dying, we're not sick. We don't have this relational strife all the time. God is going to restore Eden. That is the story of the Bible. Eden is a real place. Heaven is going to be a physical, real place because God's going to restore His original design. Like that's the beauty and the awesomeness and the power of knowing the, the biblical story. And something I also want you to notice out of this that Jesus perfectly mirrors exactly what we're seeing in this story. A lot of people don't get this, but it shows the intentionality of God's story as it relates to our sin. So look at these major themes out of this part of the story of Genesis. You have Adam, you have a curse, you have sweat, you have thorns, you have humiliation, the tree, death and dirt. Adam, it says in Romans 5, Romans 5, Jesus is the second Adam. He is the perfect Adam. He was the one that was supposed to be like this guy right here, right? And Jesus perfectly did it. Jesus becomes the curse, Paul says over and over in the New Testament. He became our curse. And when he's in the garden, he's sweating as he's praying, and it's like blood is coming out of him. As he's praying, he's in so much agony. Jesus would have a crown of thorns smashed into his skull. He would suffer humiliation his entire life from where he was born, how he was born, where he grew up. His entire ministry, he suffered humiliation. And then ultimately, the worst humiliation, he would be nailed to a tree, and that's a cursed way to die. Those, it says in the law in the Old Testament, those that are hung from a tree are cursed. And he would taste death for us and ultimately be buried in the ground. There's no accident that Jesus' ministry, life, death, death, resurrection, all perfectly aligned with the major themes that come out of this story that we're reading. No accident. God did this on purpose. Why? So that we would know that only God can reverse the curse of the fall. That's the power of what we're seeing in the ministry of Jesus. That he's literally saying with his life and his ministry, his death, his resurrection, he's saying, I, as God, am the only one that can reverse all of this. And just so you know, I'm matching it. Almost like theme to theme, I'm matching it so that you can see who I am and what I do. So then there's this kind of odd break. You have God pronouncing these judgments. And then all of a sudden in verse 20, it says, The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Right? She is going to be the source of the promise, source of the hope. And Eve means life. 
So verse 21, Then Yahweh Elohim made clothing for the skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So what we see here is this, this is the very first instance of life for life in the Bible. We see the cost of sin, and God makes this abundantly clear in the rest of the Bible, but the cost of sin is so high that it demands a life. It's the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, and then Jesus would perfectly fulfill it in the New Testament. He was like, right from the very beginning, only God can atone for sin. And that's what Jesus does. Again, the matching of places in Scripture, right? And then in Genesis chapter 3.22, they get kicked out. Done. Full reversal. Full stop of the blessing that God had planned. It's all done. It's all over with. Cherubim, angels, right? Stores, the whole thing. Keep out. It's awful. And they see this right here. By the lie. If you take it in, you believe it, you're going to pay the price later. It's like they're finally fully realizing, as they're kicked out of the garden, they're realizing the cost of their sin. Right? Won't be that big of a deal. This is such a real principle to take out for our lives, is that we do this all the time. We just think nobody will see, nobody will know. It's not that big of a deal. But our lives are the sum of a lot of little choices that we make every single day. Right? It's a great thing to notice. Don't just read the story as if it's just some trivia. Like, oh, yeah, I don't need in the garden. No, no, no. There's deep theological. Remember, deep theological meaning. Remember, what is God saying about himself in this book? What is he saying about us? So, again, more, more New Testament. I just want to end with a couple New Testament connections for you. 1 Corinthians 10. These things happen, the Apostle Paul says, so Old Testament, right, before Jesus, all that stuff happened to them as examples, like Adam and Eve, for example. And they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Don't get cocky. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Right, right from the very beginning in Genesis 3. But God is faithful. And this is, the, this is the verse here that gets warped all the time. It says it's about temptation. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. We have turned this into God will never give you more than you can handle. And that's your strength. That's all that has to do. God is just going to be like, well, you know, he can't really handle much, so I won't give him much. All right, he's really strong, or she's really tough. I'll give her, I'm going to just dump all kinds of stuff on her, because, man, she can handle it. Like, no, because that's about your strength. This verse has nothing to do with your strength or what God's going to handle you or what God's not going to handle you. Like, you see in, like, the very same God that wrote this said himself, we were given more than we could handle. I thought we were going to die. I despaired of life itself, he says in Second Corinthians. So right here you see this principle. It's like, it's about temptation. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Well, why? Because I'm that strong? No. Next verse. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Right? It's, at the end of the day, it's still about God. It's about what he's going to do, how he's going to provide a way out for you. And then James 1, I really like this one too, just about the choices that we make. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Because God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone else, right? That's what Adam did, essentially, right? It's your fault, God. But each person is tempted by what he's, by when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. So you're tempted by what you desire, right? That's you personally. Whatever, you're, whatever you want, that's going to be what gets you. For Adam and Eve, it was power. It was deity. It was wisdom aside from God, right? The enemy, I've heard, is that, you know, Satan's not that crafty. He's not really that smart. He's just consistent. He just knows who gets us, right? Each person is tempted. He's drawn away and tied by his own desires. What's the result? 
Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Genesis 3. And then he just gives a stern warning. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And I've heard it said, though, like, well, that's what Adam and Eve did. It's kind of unfair that I have to pay for that. I wouldn't have done that. I've actually heard people say that. I would have listened to God. I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. And I'm like, don't be a dummy. You sin all the time. You know, you're constantly rejecting your God in some area of your life, right? We all are, your pastor included, right? And so I've heard people say that, but we need to know we're in the same boat. And Paul talks about that in Romans 3. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God, period, full stop. So to kind of wrap this up, what can really thinking about the consequences of our sin do to our future? Like, if we consider the consequences of our sins and how they impacted our day-to-day choices, I do believe we would approach things differently. We would put a stop on our mouth sometimes. We would put a stop on what we're posting online or what we're watching, right? All these kinds of things. And if we did that, I think that we're going to understand, we're going to see the bottom line. We're going to see it clearly for what it is. Next. If you buy the line now, you will pay the price later. That's what we see happening in Adam and Eve, and it's why it's such an important story to understand. It's not a fairy tale, but because many of us learn it when we're kids, we treat it like a fairy tale, and it loses all the power that it has. So buying the line now, we will pay that price later. But what I love about this story is that's not the end of the story. You see God's purpose still in the middle of it. Genesis 3, 15 and 16 are such important verses to understand and know and see how they echo into the rest of the Bible. Because we're not going to get a full picture of Eden this side of heaven. So if you think that we're going to moralize or legislate our way back to Eden, you're going to be really, really frustrated. We've been trying to do it for a long time in all different parts of the world, and we're not getting back to Eden. The only thing that we know is that God says, you are a picture of Eden. You're supposed to be, if you're a Christian, you should be just a little taste of Eden. And one day, I'll bring everything full circle, but not yet. So we're not there, so don't be surprised when life on earth does not look like Eden. I don't know why Christians get so confused by this. We're not in Eden anymore. One day we will be, but not through our own efforts. But we are a little taste of it. So next week, Dean is going to be here. Pastor Dean, I'm really excited about him being here. And he's going to look at the next step in this journey. And he's going to be in Genesis chapter 4. So if you want to read up ahead of time and look at the story of Cain and Abel, I'd love to challenge you to think about what you draw out of that story. What do you think is something real and authentic and honest that you need to know from that story? Not just, oh yeah, Cain killed Abel, fairy tale. Nope. God's telling you something very real about a very important area of our lives. So we're going to be next week. I'm looking forward to it. Timbo, you got a a mic? All right. So, uh, again, I'm just asking for prayer. Uh, As we go up, Asher gets to go up with me in just a couple hours, and she gets to be the the lone camper from our church, and uh, she'll be staying with some other kids. But uh, the work that we do uh, spiritually is just as important as the work we do physically, right? So just be praying that God will watch over all those details for us this week, and I need guys next week. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this time that we get to uh, hear your word and hear what you've got to say to us. Uh, the book of Genesis is difficult and messy and complicated, but uh, through all that mess, you've got a clear message for us. And so I'm praying that as we're now uh, processing through this, we're thinking through the reality that small decisions have big consequences. I pray that you're going to speak to us individually where we're at, and we can hear from you on that. As we go out through this week, uh, this is entering the missions field, that we go wherever we go, 
And everywhere we go, we'll make small decisions with big consequences. And so I pray that you will continue to guide us. We thank you, God, that you're so wise, you're so beyond us and ahead of us, um, that you can give us little glimpses of your wisdom through Scripture. And so I'm praying that um, today as we go, continue the process in our hearts and speak to us clearly. Mm-hmm. Be with Kyle and Asher as they head up to work camp, that this year as they're working in, or this week as they're working in uh, Berlin, that we are starting to work in the people's hearts now so that they can hear the gospel. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.